from our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. When we started this podcast last year, I had a 15-year plan. I wanted to get to the point where famous people with ties to San Francisco would drop by and riff about local TV programming from the 1970s and 80s. Episode 11, and we are already there. Here's comedian Paula Poundstone in the Big Event Basement podcast studio at The Chronicle talking about the 1980s exercise program Morning Stretch with Joni Gregans. Joni Gregans was an early morning show. And when she would come on, I'd realize, oh, my God, I've done it again. You know, I've been up, you know, all night doing stuff I shouldn't be doing. And um, and so to punish myself, I would – okay, I'm going to do the Joni Gregans workout, you know. But when she would go to a commercial, she'd say, like, you know, she's doing this. She was in, like, a blue leotard, I think it was. And, you know, she's stretching into it. She'd go to a commercial and go, oh, keep going, keep going, she'd say. And so I would step over behind the television so that she couldn't see that I wasn't continuing. Uh, you know, when we came back from the commercial for, you know, cornflakes, well, I'd go back and do it again. But Poundstone was in town for a New Year's Eve show, and we talked about her 2017 book, The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. I should note there are a few profanities. The majority of the big event episodes are going to be rated PG, but this is not one of them. She talks openly in Search for Human Happiness about money concerns after a 1991 arrest that she covered in her 2004 book, There's Nothing in This Book That I Meant to Say. Mostly she was just funny. Whatever you do, please stick around to hear Poundstone on the time she worked as the opening act for a Jerry Garcia concert, one of the best San Francisco stories I've ever heard. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Welcome to the big event. First of all, welcome to the Chronicle Archive, Thank of, you. of which you are part of the history here. I love the billing. Uh, the board. I, it's yeah, a it, velvet lunch lady board that I bought like 10 years ago. It's fantastic. Um, and I never found a use for it, and it floated around. Really? Oh, so no, you didn't buy it for this. You just had it. No, I had it, and I had a blog, and I did like top 10 lists, and then just put them on the board, uh-huh. and all the people at that the you know digital are like put it in a slideshow and I'm like no I just want to put the letters on the board yeah and my kids would play with the letters yeah oh so, I love it so that now it's I have it though it's that I can when people come into the podcast they feel like and and you can tell I put each letter on so I went through some effort for you it's been big billing thank you yeah you know at the other cafe uh, in San Francisco which was located on the corner of Carl and Cole yeah um, there was a I think you call it a trance that's a thing the window up. Transom, above right? the door. Yeah. Um, and, and on that transom, they used to put, um, I think there was like a little wooden thing behind the window, and they would open it up and put in there um, a sign of who was playing, yeah. and it was written in uh, crayon. Really? Yeah. So right. Or marker. Maybe it was magic marker. So this but is maybe a step it was crayon. Up, yeah, having... yeah. I remember there was a fantastic, one of the funniest writers I've ever known in my life, a guy named Joe Campiolo, mm. whose home club was the other cafe. I used to do a character. Um, that was sort of after my time. Derek. I can't. I'll think of it when I don't need it. He used to do like a character thing, but that was later <clears throat> when we worked together. Uh he would just went by Joe Campiolo, 
And uh, he was really, really funny. And I remember he used to do, do, do a joke in his act about having his name up in crayon. <laughs> and, you know, how it was just as exciting as he always thought it would be. So that was, uh, if we could rewind, and you were in Boston. How did you get to San Francisco? Um, I followed in the footsteps, really, of more pioneering uh, guys than myself, more daring guys than myself. Um, yeah, so I started out in Boston. I had, I was in, you know, lucky enough time and place to, um, I'd always wanted to be a comic, but I had no idea how to go about doing so. Um, and I happened to live in Boston when the, as some people referred to it, the years of the comedy renaissance or the stand-up comedy renaissance were taking place. So that would be late 70s. Um, I started in, I think, May of 79, maybe. Um, uh, but anyway, so there was a bunch of Boston comics, and I hung out with them, and uh, a couple of them went across the country to, I think they were on their way out here to do maybe the San Francisco Comedy Competition, maybe, or maybe they just stumbled onto it when they had come out, I don't know. Uh, But anyways, all the Boston comics, um, we would, there was no such thing as cell phones, of course, and so we would all uh, arrive at the club and hover around the payphone waiting for these guys to call, and we would take turns talking to them for a few seconds apiece um, uh, to hear about their exploits in, you know, f- wherever they were. I know they went to Chicago. I think they went up to Canada. So I then got, when they got back home, I got um, addresses from them of where the clubs were, and I decided to go see what clubs were like in different cities. And uh, I took a Greyhound bus around the country, and I lived on the bus. Back then, you could buy a thing called an Ameripass for mm-hmm. $150, which is a blank ticket book. And uh, for a month, they would fill that ticket in for any place you wanted to go. Now, of course, you know, if you're going to go someplace far away, well, it takes more days to get there. And so, you know, the clock was always ticking. Um, so I would, you know, I craft for myself this trail, uh, um, trying to use my time the best I could because $150 was a tremendous amount of money to me back then. And, uh, when I would arrive somewhere, I didn't have any money. So if, say, for example, I was in Denver, what I would do is I'd get off the bus at the Denver uh, bus station. I would put myself, uh, my stuff in a, uh, at a little backpack. Uh, I'd gather whatever I needed from my big suitcase, put the suitcase in a locker. I would look at the schedule and see what time was the last trip to a town four hours away. And I would return back, say it might have been midnight. So I return back at midnight. I would take that trip to a place four hours away that I didn't care about one way or the other. And as soon as I got there, I would turn around and come back to Denver. And in this way, I got my eight hours. And uh, Wow. That and is... I, I did that on two different trips. Uh-huh. Uh, I used that technique. And, uh, and I, I, I can't remember. I lived on the bus for a, a month, two months. I don't recall anymore. Um, but anyway, when I got out to San Francisco, um, this is probably the s- second time that I had done a trip like that. When I got out to San Francisco, um, I, uh, y- you know, I just fell in love with it the minute. I, I always liken it to when Dorothy um, stepped out of the black and white house in The Wizard of Oz, you know. I stepped off the Greyhound bus, and it was over in the uh, on Mission Street, I think it was. And I, I you know, it wasn't the most glamorous part of the city for sure um but i just had a sense very early on that i was 
in this. And I'm not like one of those people who feel like, you know, the universe tells them things, you know. The, the universe hasn't been speaking to me for years. Uh, but I did have this feeling, um, y- you know, very early on that I was that I was where I belonged, especially when maybe two nights later um, I went on at the other cafe. And it wasn't just it – was, I loved the other cafe. This is, this is two nights after you've arrived in the city. Right. Or, or do you have a place to stay? I mean, Well, you it? know, there was a comic named Jim Morris. And mm-hmm. Jim had come also from Boston. And he had come before me. And so uh, I had his address and phone number. And he kindly had said that I could stay with him. But I couldn't find him when I got here. Um, you know, I you know, use a pay phone. Yeah. And I would call him. And uh, this is pre-answering machine. And if he wasn't in, you know, he just – didn't answer. It's not like he was waiting by the phone for me. So I couldn't find him. And uh, it was election day, by the way, when I arrived. Uh, it was the day that Ronald Reagan was elected. And he, I went to a John Anderson rally. John Anderson just recently died. He ran as an independent back in 1980, I think My it was. My parents took me to the whistle stop at uh, Burlingame, the Burlingame whistle stop. He did a train tour, probably ended I'm sorry. Really? Little, little Rashomon yeah. here on John Anderson. And yeah. <laughs> I, you know, the little bit I knew of him, I, I actually liked him. Yeah. And so um, I, when I couldn't find Jim at home on the payphone, I just wasn't quite sure what to do with myself. So I went out and I was somewhere in the downtown area. I really don't know where. And John Anderson had a rally. And so I decided to go to that rally. And um, I think I had a newspaper Maybe that I was sitting on, sorry, <laughs> and uh, or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe I was sitting on the ground and somebody offered me their newspaper. I can't remember anymore. But the guy who that was that I had some exchange about the newspaper with, either either he offered me to sit on it or he said, why are you sitting on that? I want to read it. I don't remember anymore. Uh, but I engaged in a conversation with this guy who was young um, and hadn't been in the city that long himself. And we really enjoyed one another's conversation. And when he heard that I had nowhere to go, he said, well, come with me. And we spent the day together. Uh, we took the— uh, I just can't imagine that happening in 2017 with the, you know, $2,000 a month to live in someone's living room in San Francisco anywhere. Right, yeah. No, I, my guess is it's a very different time. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't lived here for a long time. Yeah. But I don't—this was not—this was sort of tales of the city kind of times, you know, um, there was a feeling that uh, people, even that had gotten here recently, um, enjoyed making the next wave in feel mm-hmm. welcome. And certainly this guy did. So he says, come, you know, come with me. We spent the day together. I remember we took the um, cable car together and I had like almost no money. So everything I was spending was huge to me. And we decided to go see Gallagher at. The Great American Music great Hall. Great American Music Hall. Still here. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great – had a great marquee. You couldn't not go to the Great American Music Hall as soon as you saw that marquee. Yeah. So I paid – it was $10. And again, might have might have even been my last $10. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I felt it was a good investment. And uh, and then I stayed the night with this guy. And not like a sex thing. You know, yeah. I stayed in the living room. He stayed in his room. Um, and – but he had all these stairs up to his apartment. I don't remember where it was anymore. I just remember his hilarious. Do you remember his name or do you want to no, share it? I don't remember his name. I wish I could find him again because I'd love to, uh, you know, I'd love to return the yeah. favor in some way. But I never have. Um, 
So anyways, you know, he invited me to stay longer, but eventually I found Jim. And so, but the really, the straw that broke the camel's back for me that made me not go with him and go to Jim Morris instead was those damn stairs. I was just like, (laughs) all right, I can't walk up these stairs every day. Um, And then I don't know if I ever saw the guy again. Maybe, maybe Maybe he came to a show at one time or another. I mean, I think we were briefly. So... Yeah, so I went to the other cafe, and uh, and there was a Jim Morris had you know introduced me to that place, and uh, it, the the structure of the club was great in many 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 ways, um, and it wasn't intentional; it just sort of worked out that way. Um, but the best thing was the audience. The audiences, and that's probably my silly phone. The audiences would. They 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 seemed to be interested on get on getting in on the ground floor of something. You know what I mean? And, and so they didn't particularly look for polish, um, which is good because I had none. Um, and they seemed to appreciate uh, the fact that I don't I don't know the, the comics that San Francisco celebrated back then really um, you know didn't immediately ah oh, stupid phones didn't immediately go over, I think, in other places. There was a very sort of insular feeling to what we did here for a while. Eventually they did. Describe the other cafe for people who didn't live through it. Um, I went there once. I saw it a couple times. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It was very small, first of all. You know, I mean, I remember being excited when I packed the other cafe, and and then, you know, it was years later where I realized, okay, yeah, that's because it's seated, you know, 70 people. Yeah. Uh, but um, it was exciting at the time. Um, let's see. It was in the Haight-Ashbury district. Carl and Cole, It was right? on the corner of Carl, Carl and, Cole. and Cole. where the, the – I think the N. Judah comes by it. Uh, yes, and the 37 Corbett used to go 37 by. 37 Corbett. Could I – I was going to wait on this, but I had we had Greg Proops on, and he mentioned you and the 37 Corbett. I'm going to play it for you right oh, now. Oh, great. So you can re- react live. Let me... And then, uh, you know, we would take the um... – the, the 72 or the uh, or, or whatever to Haight Street to do the other cafe, which was on Carlin Cole. Mm-hmm. And then we'd walk up to Carlin Cole. And the 37 Corbett was the only bus that stopped in front of the other cafe every night. And during the show, it would stop there in the window. And Paula Poundstone would do her act and she'd go, have you ever noticed that no one's ever on the 37 Corbett? <laughs> and within her act, there would stop the 37 Corbett and everyone would look out the window <laughs> and there'd be one person on it. And then we'd get a huge laugh. Nice. Yeah. I got to – I got to – I got to um... – I gotta get her in here. We have a, we have a Greg Proops file. Yeah. We're in the archives. I was gonna by say the way. hers is close to mine. P O. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was that was Greg Proops. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, you know, people around the country. Um, you know, the, I th- I think a lot of the audience at the caf- at the other cafe were the same age as me and the other um, uh, open micers that were starting out there or getting a chance to you know MC or. Uh, I mean, obviously, even headlining to 70 people was fairly small potatoes, but to us it was enormous. Um, But the audience, like particularly on open mic nights, which were hands down the hottest night of the week, um, it was Wednesdays, uh, much more exciting than a Saturday night. Um, You know, all the comics were broke, and, uh, and the audience was broke too. And so... Everything we talked about, they related to. Um, they 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 were there because it was a f- a phenomenally cost effective night of entertainment. Um, you know, maybe they charged nothing, 
um, uh, and then people drank like really cheap beer and wine, mm-hmm. um, or maybe they charged a dollar, maybe. Um, and so it was this really fun night, and and then the premise of an open mic night being that anybody that wanted to could go on for five minutes. And I was lucky enough to get hired pretty early on in my stay uh, to host those open mic nights. You know, we have, I, and I'm going to give them to you, I, I actually pulled the files. Um, your very first mention in the Chronicle was March 27th, 1981, at the Holy City Zoo. And then not long after that, you're listed as a host at um, the other cafe. And then and then Great American Music <laughs> Hall, we started seeing, at Great American Music Hall, we started seeing you with groups. There were There was a all-women's group of comics and the chronicle wrote the story about it like it was the craziest thing anybody oh, had ever heard was it of. the femprof group that they were part of it but oh. you were there with jane dornacker and oh uh, yeah and, uh, i think the other cafe produced that uh, yeah. i think bob Ayers produced that. what was yeah. that time like because i mean i would think it would be tough to be a female comic back then but it seemed like there no, were some... actually honestly we got all this you know when i worked in boston the other comics were particularly misogynistic yeah. Um, to the degree that you sort of noticed it sometime. Um, I mean, I followed a guy in Boston one time. The last thing he said, and he was purposely trying to be outrageous, and that was sort of the joke, was that he would say a more and more outrageous thing. But the last thing that he said, and this was also an open mic night, last thing he said before I went on was, so I was eating out the cunt of a bear. And the important thing about this story is that the audience exploded. Like, it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. Wow. Now, I'm supposed to go on, I guess, and tell my little blessing table jokes or, you, you know what I mean? How like, old are you? I mean, are you I, eight, 19? Yeah, maybe? yeah, 19, 20, maybe, yeah. yeah. And so, but they were, they were, a lot of the Boston comics were kind of gross. Uh, and less so in San Francisco. But what you got in San Francisco was a lot of this, you know, and I always feel it sort of ghettoizes um, women comics, even though the minute I say that, everyone will go, well, weren't you on the women this and women that? And the answer is yes, I was. Um, there have been a million shows where they thought, just like you're saying, they thought this great angle was, you know, and it's all women. Like, like that's so phenomenal yeah. somehow, you know. It would be phenomenal if we were all astronauts, but not just people talking. Um, uh, but anyways, we did get a lot of um, opportunities, I think, because it was, uh, you know, uh, the women this and women that show. Whereas I don't know that in terms of sort of performance chops, um, everybody if you were j- – if people were just sort of competing by quality of what they did – I'm not sure you would put together that same list. Um, so, uh, you know, I uh, I harvested that fruit. Well, you know, you were playing Boarding House. You were doing these gigs. But then Herb Cain, um, I actually, we have the article. This is, a, this is your first Herb Cain item. He was the old Chronicle columnist. Sure. Um, Paula Poundstone, the local comic who works the other cafe in Cobb's Pub, which that sounds weird, Cobb's Comedy Club. It's not anyway. It used to be Cops Pub. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, has landed two biggies in February. Shots on the David Letterman Show and Saturday Night Live. This is oh, in yeah. January 1984. Um, I forgot that I was in a Herb Cain thing. Yeah, you were in Herb Cain. So I, I also read, and, and we did a profile on you right around that time where you mentioned, you know, I think you had Robin Williams's 
manager or agent. Yeah, yeah. Things were going good for you. What was kind of the launch point for you? I'm still waiting, man. <laughs> I, as soon as I not. launch, I'm going to call. <laughs> I'm the, I'm, I got a red phone just waiting to go to the Chronicle for my launch day. Here it is. Um, I don't know. There was never any, you know, in the show business, there's um, what I think is really, you know, urban lore to some degree. Um, or it may have been something that took place many, many years ago. There was this idea that you do one thing and then, by golly, you take off from there. Uh, I'm not sure that was ever true for anybody, um, but certainly it wasn't for me. It was this very sort of incremental um, – and, and yet I believed that story. And so what would happen to me is every time I did something, like I did say, for example, my first Letterman, and I'm, you know, and I'm thinking like, you know, tomorrow morning I'm yeah. going to get up. I'm going to be a household name. It's, my life is going to be changed, right? I'm, you know, trying to decide where, where exactly I'm going to put my pool and my chimpanzee and otter, which was always <laughs> part of my plan. Uh, and, of course, you know, you get up the next day and nothing's any different anyway. You still got to go do the road. You got to do your thing. And, and you, you work and you work and you work. Uh, but I, I did – I lived – in that in the in in this house with this picture from the from the archives where I'm on the trampoline, um, I that was the backyard of um, a house that I shared with Dana Carvey and his at the time fiance uh, uh, Paula, and um, uh, Dana got um, this very hot management company that also Robin Williams had. In um, Los Angeles, uh, they were originally it was Rollins Joffe, then it became Rollins Joffe Mora, and then it became Rollins Joffe Mora and Presner, and then eventually they included like their barbers and their accountants, I think, in the list. And uh, and there I was, like uh, both Robin kindly um, and Dana both talked to their the same management company about me, and I went down to uh, L.A. and. Uh, um, you know, got a slot at the improv and they came to see me. And then I, you know, I say went with them. There was never any contract. It was all, you know, it was but always like a gentleman's there, agreement. Correct. I did. What year was that? Early 80s. Yeah. It was 83, maybe. I think 83. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, and, 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 and it never, you know, there was never like an explosion of, of anything. I did do, um, uh, Robin was guesting on Saturday Night Live. This is a long time ago. This yeah. is the Eddie Murphy cast. Sure. Um, and uh, Robin was guest hosting, and he brought me on to do stand-up. Um, and, uh, you know, when I've seen a tape of it, and I don't think I even have a tape of it anymore myself, but anytime I've seen anything of it, I'm like, boy, I wasn't very good. But um, it was still pretty, you know, early on. I was I was so easily unnerved, Uh Less so now, I guess, but any kind of television stuff just rattled me as a stand-up. You know, I could, I always felt like I was wrapped in cellophane. I always felt like I could, you know, I couldn't breathe. Um, which is partly because the, the 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 way I developed was at the other cafe where I'm looking out the window and the 37 Corbett goes by and I stop and talk about that or I talk to the people. The other cafe was so small, there was nobody in that room that you couldn't have a conversation with from stage because they were all practically on top of you. The stage was only an inch high uh, or two inches high. And uh, so I learned to work with this um, 
sort of lack of preparation for one thing. I never memorized uh, like a set set. Yeah. I just and uh, to this day to try to do that, I just feel put in a box and not comfortable. And I feel like it takes away the thing that's best about me. Do you? You're here for New Year's Eve. It's New Year's Eve, by the way. Happy yeah. New Year! Oh, to you it's, too. This will, this will come out in a couple of days. Um, and you're going to play the Norse, which is a yeah. great theater. I don't know if you've been there. I think I was, was last year there for New Year's, maybe. Yeah. Um, so it, it was restored by uh, Sidney Goldstein, who does city arts and lectures here. Like, no one even knew it was there. It was in the middle of the city block, and no one knew this thing existed. They had court records in there, and she restored it. Wow. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. But I, I wanted to ask you, when you come here, do you still feel a little bit of that? Do you like coming up here? Is oh, it... I love coming up here. Yeah. yeah. It's not, this, you know, I mean, when I hear about how expensive the rents are and how, you know, there's not um, middle-income housing and it saddens me yeah. uh, because one of the great things about San Francisco back then was that we were all broke and yet we lived in nice apartments not fancy by any means but nice apartments and and uh, um, you know safe-ish neighborhoods no yeah. you know not you, you never felt like you were you know descending into the bowels of hell and had to you know keep you know, walk in fear all the time. And we, we we were able to use public transportation and get around uh, fairly efficiently and safely. And, um, and again, the audience that came to see us didn't have any money either. And yet they all lived locally. I would go to Cobbs with my friends in high school. And this is late 80s, uh, mid, mid-late 80s. And I remember I couldn't – they had the two-drink minimum – but I couldn't get an alcoholic drink. I couldn't even come close to passing for it. So I would get um, two mineral waters because I thought that was the most mature thing to get. <laughs> very mature. Like if I got orange juice or milk, I would yeah, give they, away that as a little kid. Away, yeah. But if I ordered two mineral waters, someone might think I'm you yeah. know, just kind of worldly. So, no, that was a special time. But they were expensive, expensive mineral waters, right? Because oh, they, they wanted were. what you'd pay for a – yeah, very expensive, but it was worth it. I got to see, you know, Will Durst and Dana Gould and Proops oh, and gosh, um, you know, and a bunch of people. I, yeah. I missed you. I think you were, you were. Oh, probably, I was long gone, you were, you, you shaking the dust of this off. town off my. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I came back and forth for a long time. I lived. Um, I shared an apartment. I lived in the maids' quarters of an apartment on Hyde Street for yeah. a long time, and. Um, uh, you, the way you got into my uh, my sec- part of the apartment was through a window off a balcony, yeah. and uh, you know when I first moved in uh, there, it was Robin's. It, Robin lived there at the time, and uh, him and his wife kindly invited me to uh, live with them. And uh, but like I say, I was sort of down in this basement area, and uh, they gave me um, uh, a. Uh, panic button thing for the alarm system that they had and it was on a chain and it was like you know plastic button and you push it and the alarm you know the security people come out and uh it was kind of funky where i was staying like you could really uh see where somebody could easily break into where i was Mm -hmm. and so um you know i'm kind of scaredy cat anyways so i did always sleep with that beside you know beside my would have a bed, but I've always slept on the floor, so beside my area. Um, so one morning, years later, I mean, I, I kept that place for a long, long time. Uh-huh. So one morning, years later, I come up and I'm having breakfast with uh, Valerie Villardi, who was married to Robin at the time. And I have the thing in my hand, the button. And she goes, oh, you know, we canceled that service years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so all those years, I slept with Dumbo's feather thinking yeah. I was protecting myself. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Ah, those were the days. Happiness. Um, 
I'm, I'm sorry. This is going to be a bad segue, but it was coming. <laughs> yeah. um, I read your book. Uh, Thank the, you. The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. And I, I read it and um, I, I kind of thought it would be actually an okay segue because it's a lot about um, – I felt like it was like a conversation. Um, I talked to the book a couple of times as if you were there, which I do with I'm, your podcast. I'm very too. flattered. Thank you. Um, and then the other thing I liked about it is um, it's a stealth parenting book, but not like a judgy parenting book. Like I read it and I'm like, oh, good. That happens to someone else, too, and not just my kids. Oh, yeah. And well, I'm very glad to hear that, too. Yeah. Uh, parenting can be one of the loneliest things in the entire world. And you are yeah. floating in a sea of self-doubt from day one. <laughs> And uh, so that was part. That is part of the underlying. Uh, 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 yeah, that's 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 in the water of that book. So this is your this is your second book, correct? Yep. Is this something that you had pitched six or seven years ago, or were you just kind of building it as you went? Oh no, I pitched it from the start. I, I had a really silly idea. Okay, so I had written my other book, uh, which. Uh, as, uh, there's nothing in this book that I meant to say, and uh, it, which is in essence a, a memoir, and. and uh, it is um, a series of biographies of towering historic figures, and in the telling of their story, I tell my own. So as I talk about Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. everything that I say about Lincoln, anytime anything reminds me of something from my own life, I jump off and tell it um, as if I'm actually comparing myself to you know Abraham Lincoln or Sitting Bull or um, Helen Keller or on and on and so – it took me nine years to write that book, and I and I wrote it. Uh, uh, there, there's a variety of reasons it took that long. One of one of them is it's a hard to write a book. B, I'm not a writer for a living, and so I have to slip writing into the in between the cracks of my life. And um, I had little little kids and a full time job, and uh, and so there aren't many cracks. So that's one reason it took so long. And then you know my life fell apart somewhere in the middle of writing it, and that. Added a little time to the old, and that's book a big part of the book too. Um, it's th- in the book. book. Yeah, this, yeah. This book mentions it, it, the it, aftermath. This book took place years after that, yeah. and so it was. Although the you know some of the, um, you know, some of the shame of that period of my life will uh, I will never be. Uh, entirely rid of, and so occasionally I reference it, but not much. And, it's and it's not do, a book about an, that. Another thing you mention is, that, and if you, people read the first book, I'm sure it's like a sequel, but you had moved from a much bigger house to mm-hmm. a rental, and you know, I, again, I associate it with it. You talk about money problem, not money problems, like you know, but but you're. Mm-hmm. There's money Bing. problems. My my goal, you know, people talk about their bucket lists. I'm like, look at I got two I got two things I want to do. Yeah. One is outlive my debt. Yeah. And one is outlive uh, my uh, 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 vision. Uh-huh. Uh, I hope that my eyes can hold up <laughs> until yeah. I'm done with them. Uh, and uh, but but outlive my debt is uh, high high on my list uh, and beyond that. People are like, oh, do you want to travel? No, I want to pay that debt off. Thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, so yeah, yeah. No, there's. I mean, I don't. I don't talk on and on about money problems, but yeah. certainly it's in there. Um, I I thought that uh, these experiments. You know, what I wanted to know at the end of each one is which one stuck. You did swing dancing. You were uh, going and hanging out with the elderly, which started out rough and then turned out it seemed to be 
you yeah. got the most heps and blues out of that. I got which, a lot of heps and blues out of that. Heps and blues. Could you please oh, explain yeah. that? Yeah. So one of the things I realized right in the introduction, I think it was, or very early on in the book, I, I you know, um, uh, I, I realized that one of the things about happiness, first of all, it's an interesting emotion in that if 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 I think of something that made me angry, I, I often can feel angry again pretty fast. Um, and I know that's not like a, you know, like a Buddhist idea. Um, but uh, or if I think of something that made me sad. I can feel sad fairly quickly over that thing. Those emotions, uh, although they may dwindle, um, they, 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 they never really go away entirely, for me anyways. Happiness, on the other hand, when I think of something that made me happy, and many things do, mm-hmm. um, I feel longing, I, I, you know, which is sort of not really – I don't get happy again. I get like, oh, I wish I – I wish I was still doing that, or I wish I could have, you know. And so I thought, you know, happiness is so elusive. It's so, it, it's 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 like Christmas present. It's you know, it's only on the it's only on the earth for that one, and then it's gone. And I thought, okay, why is that? Like, what is it that you know? Because so many people talk about the things that make them unhappy or things that make them angry. Um, I said, well, one of the things is we don't have a measure for it. You know, we mm-hmm. don't we don't. Um, we do, and one of the things I found when I was writing the book is we don't even have that many adjectives. Uh, you know, that's, I, I found that I use the same words a lot because, yeah, yeah we don't – we just – I don't think we expect happiness the way we expect other emotions. So I thought, well, one of the things we need is a framework, a measure, a unit, as you said. You know, so I, I created uh, um, heps and balloons and heps are, 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 are like uh, – you know, heps are like cups – would be to a to a gallon, and and, mm-hmm. and a balloon might be a gallon, um, you know, and uh, uh, like uh, Monopoly, like houses and hotels. Yes, exactly. And, and right, Baloo, takes four. Is from the Jungle Book, you're a Disney Baloo fan. Blue is from the Jungle Book. I'm a huge Disney fan, and Blue is also the name of one of my favorite cats. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, the second cat I had as an adult, and then my cat uh, Hep. Uh, who was uh, also a great cat and a, and a fabric eater, uh, so <laughs> yes. she left a mark. Yeah, I, I we pulled out a passage, and I was hoping you'd read from it. But yeah, it, it's something that um, you talk about board games in this book, and I love it because I'm a parent, and it's the best self help book for me because I listen to you, and I totally associate with it because our house is that much of a kind of passive aggressive mess when we're playing board games. Too. Oh yeah. So. Um, well, so the, the the premise of the happiness book was that uh, uh, I did experiments doing things that I or other people thought would make me happy. Yeah. Um, and then I wrote each one, each uh, experiment as a chapter, um, but they're all written as experiments. So there's field notes, analysis. The analysis is the part where I, I check in and say how things are going. Um, because the question for me wasn't whether I would enjoy doing something. The question was, what could I do that would give me a, a, a lasting boost so that when I returned to my regular life, I still felt good? Um, so one of the chapters uh, – in fact, two of the chapters are about getting organized, mm-hmm. which I was certain was going to be a key. And uh, so in this uh, – in this chapter, um, I was uh, trying to get rid of some of the games that we ha- that I had had. You know, my kids uh, 
sort of outgrew a lot of stuff that I had. Um, uh, anyways, and so I was talking about which games I would give away and which games I would keep. And someone my uh, had made this executive decision to get rid of a bunch of games, and I found them, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not getting rid of those. And so I was justifying the game of life. So playing the game of life with my kids was often a jumping-off place for conversations with them about real life. For example, there's an odd rule in the game that dictates that when a player gets a baby, each of the other players must play that, must pay that player $5,000. I stopped the game for a lecture when that came up. I said, listen to me, this is important. No one gives you $5,000 when you have a baby. In fact, do you want to know what happens when you have a baby? Put all the money in the middle of the board. Okay, now, Thomas C., go get the matches. (laughs) We must have four different versions of Monopoly, and I don't think we've ever completed an entire game. It's an interminably long game to begin with, and we added an extra hour arguing because more than one of us always wanted to be the Hat, or Mowgli in the Disney version, or Paul in the Beatles version, or the corrupt governor in the Chicago version. Uh, Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, Excellent. Sorry, I'm going to applaud. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Uh, did you did you have fun writing it? It was fun. I did it's have fun, fun writing it. It, yeah. it. You know, like anything else, you know, uh, uh, it, it, like anything else, you know, you, there's parts at which it feels like work. But for the most part, I did have fun. Uh, uh, for the most part, I did have fun writing it. And I genuinely discovered some things. Um, you know, if I had my life to live over again, and mercifully I don't, um, but if I did, uh, I might do the experiments in a different order than I did. And I argued and argued with the editor about this because she was of a mind that I should shift the time frame for things. Because I, I genuinely, went into, genuinely went into each experiment not really knowing what was going to happen, um, not knowing what was going to happen in my home while I was working on it in the analysis part of it, and not knowing what was going to happen in the experiment itself. And um, so I opened the book with the fitness chapter. It's the first one that I did. Uh, I went down the street from my house, which is sort of funny in retrospect because I found a workout place that was as close to me as I could possibly get it so I didn't have to walk very far to get there. Um, So you could tell my heart wasn't really in the fitness. Um, But I worked out with a Taekwondo, uh, you know, self-defense guy. Um, and I only selected that. I have no passion for Taekwondo. Um, I only selected because he was the closest uh, workout guy to my house. Yeah. Um, and uh, I did it for really several months. Um, and I was in pretty damn good shape looking back. I could do 500 rope jumps what, in a row. What comedians, just let's go by comedians, when you were at peak of Taekwondo, Whose ass could you kick? Louis Anderson. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I could kick Louis Anderson's ass. Uh, uh, John of the Winters towards the end of his life. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I was never. I'm still. You know, what's funny is this is so that that part of the book that I did that experiment um, a solid seven years ago, and I just recently went back to the guy at the yeah. end of this summer. I thought, you know, I am really starting to pork up. And 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 I also realized from my experiment that I just plain felt better when I was in better shape. And so I, I went 
back to the guy, and I'm still not at a place where I could do 500. That's why I know I was in pretty good shape then because, you know, I do 75 rope jumps now, and two things happen. One is I almost cry, and the other is I leak yeah. because I've gotten to that age where jumping <laughs> is really not all that helpful in my life. Um, but I do, um, even in – I've I started in August, and now we're at the end of December, and, yeah. and I, I feel markedly better um, – I wanted to share with people, um, you know, things that they could do in their own lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't want everything to be some rich person thing. Um, And so, um, but this workout guy, and I take private classes, it's expensive. And so I kept saying to myself, okay, why? Like, as I came to the end of the experiment, I thought, well, okay, I can, I don't have to, you know, I need to go on to the next experiment, regardless of the fact that I'm enjoying working out with this guy. But I said, to myself, well, okay, what's stopping me from doing push-ups in my own house or doing rope jumps in my own house? And one day I'm working out with the guy and, uh, you know, I just done like 500 rope jumps and, you know, run back and forth across the gym, Lord knows how many times. And, and uh, you know, I could do something like 30 push-ups back then. I'd done my 30 push-ups and my bloody 200 sit-ups or whatever it was. And then I'm panting on the floor and he says, uh, okay, get up. And I thought, okay, that's why I can't do it on my own because I wouldn't have thought of that in a million years. <laughs> Those kinds of instructions, things like get up, this is the furthest thing from my mind at that moment. I'm like, that's where you need a professional you know, I would never be able to push myself to that degree. I, I do. My wife is sitting here, and we she takes me to a class once in a while with an instructor. Yeah. And I tell her, I like, keep one of your shoes untied because that's your break. You oh, go yeah. to tie your shoe. Yeah. Or like if the instructor's not looking. I'm like, she's not looking. We don't have to do this. <laughs> and this is you. You might have been in high school. There used to be a show on television in San Francisco. Joni Greggins. Joni Greggins. Joni Greggins. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I would. I got to get Joni Greggins on the podcast. So talk about uh, her. Well, the... these were during some of my years of. Uh, of uh, Morning you know, stretch uh, with Joni Greggins. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, you know, I was in my early 20s. I worked in nightclubs. Yeah. I, they were years of debauchery. Yeah. So I often would be up all night. And, uh, it, you know, and when you'd hear. Uh, and, and I had. A television in my room, as I recall, um, but you know this was back before cable, yeah. and uh, and I didn't get cable anyways. But this was back before cable, and there was you know uh, TV turned off at at a certain point. You know we have that horrible you know we've reached the end of our broadcasting day and whoo, come on the TV. But Joni Gregers was an early morning show, and when she would come on, I'd realize oh my god I've done it again. You know I've been up you know all night doing stuff I shouldn't be doing, yeah. and. Um, and so to punish myself, I would – okay, I'm going to do the Joni Greggins workout, you know. But when she would go to a commercial, she'd say like, you know, she's doing this. She was in like a blue leotard, I think it was. Yeah. And, you know, she's stretching into it. She'd go to a commercial go, oh, keep going, keep going, she'd say. And so I would step over behind the television so that she couldn't <laughs> see that I wasn't continuing. Uh, you know, when we came back from the commercial for, you know, cornflakes, well, I'd go back and do it again. But... Paul from the Diamond Center was the Oh, yeah. Oh, remember the guy that had the late night show and he, he was at a bar? Yeah, the yeah. Sleazy Arms Hotel. Yes. Jim Gabbard, another. Yeah. He's still oh, around. I've he? interviewed him. I've wow. interviewed all these people. I haven't wow. interviewed Greggins yet. I've interviewed Paul from the Diamond Center. Oh, yeah. I remember Paul from the Diamond Center. So I was yeah. going to go to a lightning round. Yeah. All right. Ready? I got a few quick ones for you. Um, 
you opened, according to the Chronicle, at I believe the old Waldorf yeah. for Warren Zevon. Yes. Do you remember that? And yeah. what what was that like? Uh, I had no association with Warren Zevon whatsoever. Um, you know, I came in, I did my thing, I get out. They, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not like they were like hanging out with the opening act, but it was exciting. Yeah. I don't think I went over particularly well. Any of the time I opened for musicians, it never it never went well. Um, uh, but anyways, yeah, yeah. And then I opened for Dave Mason one time. Many years ago, I used to use a chalkboard in my act. I didn't mm-hmm. do it for very long. Um, uh, it was hard to carry it and stuff like that. But I opened for Dave Mason, and his roadies packed up my chalkboard and took it away. And I just decided that that was a good reason not to use the chalkboard anymore. So I, I was stolen from by some of my uh, musical uh, headliners. Nice. And, uh, and I also opened for uh, Jerry Garcia. Really? At the Old Waldorf. Yep, 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 yep. They had, he was there for like a week. How was that crowd? Terrible. Yeah. Awful. I, Horrible. I wouldn't think that would be. No, it was awful. I've heard from and... comics that the marijuana crowd is not as good as the drinking crowd. Oh, yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. And I'm not even sure that these were just marijuana people. Lord yeah. knows what they were doing. Um, you know, Jerry Garcia, I didn't, wasn't familiar with him. I, I knew the name. I knew that he was Grateful Dead. I knew some sort of reputation stuff, but I wouldn't have known one of their songs if I tripped over it. And I certainly didn't know their crowd. Um, so he was there for like a week, and what they decided to do was they were going to hire these comics. And, um, you, you know, the, I don't know, there were maybe it wasn't there a whole week, three, four, five nights, whatever it was. So each night they used a different comic. And the early comics, I remember Durst did it, and the early comics would come back and, you know, tell their tale to the rest of us, and we'd be like, oh, my God, you know. So I knew I had my work cut out for me, but there were two shows. So I go on, I do the first show, and they wanted 20 minutes. I go on, I do, I do my 20 minutes, and, uh, you know, uh, it, was a, it was a miracle. I, I connected. Uh, they, they, they liked me. I did, I'm not going to say they loved me, but they liked me. It went well. I do my thing. I I get off. Uh, they chastised me for doing like eighteen minutes instead of twenty. The 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 people who hired me, they were like, we asked for twenty. Like, okay, eighteen. Let's you know. I'll tell Round you up. what. Round up. Yeah, yeah. D- stiff me. How about that? <laughs> Don't worry about. Um, but uh, you know, and and I remember it's Jerry Garcia wasn't there. He he came like forty minutes late to his own show. Um, but when they came in, his manager had this necklace that had teeth on it, and. I, it was a theory of mine that those were the teeth of the opening acts <laughs> that they had, you know, chewed up and spit out before me. Uh, um, so I'm thinking, you know, this is great. This turns out, you know, maybe I'll go on tour with Jerry Garcia. Maybe this is really the kind of crowd I'm made for. So what no one told me, and I only had 20, 18 minutes. I only had 18 minutes of material. Yeah. But what nobody told me was those people bought tickets for two shows. It's the same crowd. So I go to the second show. They line the stage. Now they're all fucked up, first of, first of all, right? Now they're all messed up. Whatever it was they were taking yeah. on the first show hadn't really kicked in yet, but now it has. So you got that against you. And then the other thing is they, now they, 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 they've lined the stage. They're like leaning on the stage, a lot of the people, and they are saying my act along with me because they just heard it a little while oh. ago. And now they're like sort of animalish and yeah. unpleasant. I always thought that they should show cartoons before him instead of having an opening act. Yeah. I mean, as an audience member, I don't enjoy an opening act. Very rarely. Very rarely. I've gone to see the person that I went to see. And unless the show was presented from the get-go as these two people, then 
I always just felt like, well, who is that? Well, why are they there? I thought I was going to see Ray Charles. What are they doing there? I, I do like, like, years later being able to tell people. I saw an opening act that I bagged on when I first saw Well, because that is what it did, right? You bagged on him because yeah. it was a terrible experience. I think I saw Rage Against the Machine open for Public Enemy, and my friends and I were like, who's Rage Against yeah. the Man? You know, these guys suck, <laughs> and then they ended up being great. So I don't have anybody open for me because one of two things is going to happen. Either the crowd's going to love them, and, and then when I come on, they're like, hey, bring back the person we liked. Um, or they're going to suck and it's going to be awful. Yeah. And I'm just too selfish <laughs> to uh, give up that time with my audience. All right. Well, lightning round number two. All right. I'm not very good That's at lightning. That's right. No, no, no. We'll, we'll call it something else. Let's okay. get another yeah. name for it. We'll uh, pound stone round All right. number yeah. two. I, I got three. Uh, trampoline. We have a chronicle photo of you on a trampoline. Weirdly does not explain anywhere in the story by Ben Fong Torres, by the way, right. who is a legend in his own right. Yeah, so. and it was a big, it wasn't one of those round ones. We have a round one now yeah. at our house. But it wasn't one, or in our backyard, but it wasn't one of the round backyards one. This was like a big square trampoline, like a rectangle trampoline like you would have found in a high school gym back when they had the insurance to cover it. Um uh, I had it because I grew up with one, and so I knew they were fun. Mm -hmm. And so when I put together a couple of pennies, I, I, I bought one. And it is odd that there's no reference to the fact that I'm on a trampoline. I, I'm in a very odd position on it. It's not a um, – it is not – and I'm not a gymnast. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't look pretty when I jump. It's kind of an odd photo, actually, in retro. But I think we just thought, oh, it would be fun for me to be, you know, bouncing. But yeah. it's a little bit like taking a photo of a cat. It's really hard to do. <laughs> Well, thank you for answering that, and I think yeah. it's super cool that, like, once you got a little money together, you did not spend it on, you know, I don't know what well, I, I think sp comics spent it on, but, you know, you, I know you, there's some I reference to I spent it on some stupid stuff, but there's any but number— But a trampoline is a cool thing to spend, like, It you was know. really cool, actually. There's any number of comics uh, that are of my generation uh, that were San Francisco comics that will tell you they have a memory of— Jumping on the trampoline in Paula Poundstone's backyard, or Dana Carvey's backyard. That's the title for your third book. Jumping on the trampoline in Paula Poundstone's backyard. That's a great experiment. It, it actually would fit really well right in the title. Okay, third third lightning round question, and yeah. it's book-related. Um, my favorite chapter, the Lamborghini chapter stressed me out the most, and the one that just made me feel good was the hug chapter, which um, you decide to just give hugs and it's uncomfortable, and you starts with the TSA agent, and that yeah, didn't work. Yeah, yeah. But then I'm, it ends I'm up, on the national do not hug list now because the TSA hates hugging. It ends up though at, at wait, wait, don't tell me, which um, we love. My wife's here; she loves it. Yeah, oh, thank you. Listen to it with the whole family; it's delightful. I think it's perfect for you. What you were talking about with the other cafe, it's like it's a good fit. Yeah, I think it is. Too. And and I wanted to ask you about that. Um, just wait, wait, don't tell me. Um, how did that? happen and do they just keep calling you back? no in the most boring of ways they call me up and ask me i had never heard of it um in fairness uh, they're about to celebrate their 20th anniversary i think i've been with them for 16 years uh -huh. um uh, uh, and, and and so they'd already been at it for a few years they were they did not do it in front of an audience at that time they were all in different studios wired um there's a word for that but i forget what it is um and uh, it was not 
distributed in as many cities as it is now, in as many markets as it is now. Um, it was mostly just Chicago, I think, maybe a handful of other places. I guess it was in Los Angeles, but it was it didn't have a lot of listenership at the time. Um, so they called me up. They asked me if I would do it. My manager, well, actually, they called her. And she said, oh, we got this call from these people, and they want you to blah, blah, blah. And uh, I, I, so she said, should I just have them send you a tape? Because there's no way I was going to be in front of the radio at the whatever time that show aired. Um, and uh, so I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, this tells you how long ago it was. They sent me a cassette tape. I put it on the island in my kitchen where it fell in among the junk on the island in my kitchen. And uh, one day my nanny uh, uh, happened to see it. And he says, uh, he goes, oh, he sees the tape laying there. And he goes, oh, I love this show. He saw the label on it. Wait, wait, don't tell me. And he says, I love this show. And I said, oh, yeah, I haven't listened to it. Um, And he goes, oh, it's great. You should do it. So I call him up and say, I guess I listened to it after that. But really, it was mostly my nanny saying I should do it that made me do it. I, as I said, we, we weren't in front of an audience when we did it then. So I go to um, what was NPR Studios in Los Angeles at the time, which was really close to my house. That I loved. You know, I put on this stupid headset. I sit in front of the microphone, and I'm hooked up via wire with Peter Sagal and Carl Castle. Um, I forget who the other guests were, maybe probably Roy. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and we you know, begin doing this show and they asked me, you know, questions about the Weiss News and I, of course, knew nothing. I always failed. I've, I have the record for losses still. Um, and uh, But in my headset, you know, the, the director can cut in and everybody doesn't hear him, just we hear him. The, so in my headset, I'm hearing the director go, jump in anytime, say anything you want, which is um, very rare that one hears that in the show business. Yeah. You're normally told, shut up. You, you know, don't say that. Uh, oh, you said fuck. Don't say fuck. You're, you're usually somebody's chastising you for something. You talk too much. You didn't talk enough. You did this. You did that. But these guys are just like, whatever you want, just jump in. Yeah. And so it's hard not to fall in love with that. And then very soon after um, I joined them, they uh, started working in front of an audience. And that brings a great energy to the show and really has broadened the audience that comes to see me a lot, which is fun. Excellent. Thank yeah. you so much. Oh, thank you. This coming. was I love talking about the old San Francisco. I days. hope you'll come back again then. I, um, yeah, I, I hope I get I will, to. I will get the Joni Gregan's file out. All right. Um, I will get Comedy Day in the Park if you did any of those. Oh, have, I did. We have all of those. Photos. Oh, wow. So that's um, a great. I, I'm going to get you the other cafe photo, and then we have more. So if you come back. I've got more history for you. And uh, thank you so much. I, I, I love that idea. My, my thanks to you and to the San Francisco Chronicle and, for, uh, and, to, and to San Francisco, which is a place that I really genuinely love. Awesome. We're going to end it with that. Uh, the big event, Paula Poundstone, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive producer is Fernando Diaz and editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Theme music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks. If you like what you heard, listen to more Chronicle podcasts, including the entire Greg Proops interview at www.sfchronicle.com backslash podcasts with an S or subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher and other streaming services. Support our journalism and subscribe to The Chronicle. A digital subscription is much less expensive than you think. www.sfchronicle.com
So how long have you worked here? I have been here uh, 17 years, not including the two years I spent from 82 to 84 as a Chronicle paperboy. Wow. Which, which we hire and fire by seniority here. So whenever there's talk about layoffs, I count those two years. That uh-huh. was my start date, 82. But then I left and then came back in 99. And I worked for the Examiner for a year, and then the two papers merged. Oh, see, I'm listening to 82, and then I hear 17 years, and I was so happy with that. Yeah. I thought, I'm not as old as I thought I was. No, no, you're, you're not. Tricks you're not. Math. You... <laughs> Somebody on the Twitter, you know how you know how they'll say, they'll have a list of, you know, quote-unquote celebrity birthdays, yeah. and they just list the ages, and they have no connection to these people. But anyway, so mine was up a couple of days ago, and they said I was 56, and I'm, I didn't. Write it and correct it. Didn't correct it? Yeah. Like, I, I wrote back, I write, I'll take it. Thanks. Well, we have your Chronicle archive um, uh, here, and I think it says that you were four when you came to San Francisco in 1980. That sounds so about that right. That sounds about right. And maturity-wise, it's like with windshield factor. <laughs> you know, I think they should do that. You know, yeah. they do that with the temperature. They'll say, well, it's, right, it's it's 20, but with wind chill factor, it's two below. Uh-huh. I think they should do that with ages. So, they say, well, okay, I came when I was four, but with the immaturity factor, <laughs> I was like a fetus when I arrived here. 